Hi everybody, <laughs> welcome to the, another episode of DigiBiden Friends. I am joined today by Kurt Walker Jr. Thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Kurt is known, actually I tell you what, I'll, I'll let you, I'll allow you to do a, a nice introduction for yourself. Um, tell oh us my. a little bit about yourself, your, some of your history, and why you are involved in cryptocurrency, especially with the, <laughs> the project that you are involved with. Uh, well, uh, there's a lot of things I'm involved with, so it's hard to say exactly where I'm from, but I'm definitely a Bitcoiner. Uh, I started in 2012. Uh, I accepted Bitcoin for payment on some signs that a guy wanted me to print at my printing company for a, uh, for a protest. So that was my first introduction to Bitcoin conceptually. Um, actually thought it was a bad idea the first time I heard of it. Uh, <laughs> it was like, yeah, I don't know, you're paying me in some kind of video game tokens or something. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> long story short, I, I, got, I read the white paper, fell in love with the concept, uh, and I've been a big advocate for Bitcoin uh, really ever since. I was a early sort of big blocker. I was, I was big in the, the big block wars. Um, by big, I mean active. I, I don't know that I'm uh, big in any <laughs> rational sense other than, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a large guy. But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm like... But, but so you, because you were around back before it was even a, a thing, really, back in when it first started being discussed kind of around about like 2013, 2014-ish? I think the, the, the earliest whispers were probably 2013 about big blocks versus small blocks. But I, I think the argument really started in 2015 with the release of, uh, I think it was Bitcoin XT that was the first implementation that was supposed to be able to accept a two megabyte block and... Uh, then there was Bitcoin Unlimited and Bitcoin Classic and, and everything else. It turned into the Bitcoin Cash fork. Uh, ultimately, um, Bitcoin Unlimited still exists. There's still a couple of the older implementations that uh, exist today on BCH. Uh, and then ultimately, I have become a BSV supporter uh, because during the hash war, uh, I, I continue to focus on a lot of the fundamentals of the white paper, which I think is crystal clear. I don't like the concept of developer centralization. I think that miners absolutely are the governance model in a proof of work system. And I think BSV is the only implementation that actually um, respects that. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. Um, but yeah, I, I consider myself very much a Bitcoiner. I've been a Bitcoiner for a long time. And uh, I'm also I'm co-founder of CryptoTradersPro.com. We, we teach uh, technical and fundamental uh, analysis. We have a podcast. Uh, Matthew, my partner, and I, uh, we, we run a private trading community, and we all um, uh, have a good time. So we're, I'm, I'm active there daily. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitch now, and uh, I don't know, everywhere, I guess. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm basically everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so you've, you've obviously got quite a, quite a history there. One of the things that, that you actually mentioned on, which was really quite good, and so maybe it's a really good starting place for us, is... The, the focus more around miners and around having multiple implementations of your core wallet so that you are not basically tied up by, by one core implementation. So for Digibyte, by sure. comparison, we have the one Digibyte core wallet. That's the only wallet that does any mining, anything at all like that. But I know obviously coming from certainly BCH, now BSV, you have multiples. Do you want to talk a little bit about that for us? What you think the pros are there? Maybe some of the, the pitfalls perhaps sure. as well? Uh, it, it's an interesting concept. Actually, it's it's something that people don't talk about a whole lot. Um, there's sort of this uh, hegemony of Bitcoin Core 
in BTC. And when people hear the word Bitcoin Core, I think they picture Roger Ver talking about the BTC coin and, and they treat it as like, well, it's a derogative. It's not really Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It's not Bitcoin Core, blah, blah, blah. Bitcoin Core is the name of the software implementation. You can find it on GitHub. So yeah. Bitcoin is implemented in software. If you are going to mine BTC, 99% of BTC miners are running the Bitcoin Core node software. Yes. Um, the positive of that is if you trust the Bitcoin Core developers, then everything <laughs> is delightful for you and you can make your own little requests and they can make it happen. Do they really? Uh, however, <laughs> not in my experience, but they may. I don't know. I, I don't know who their relationships are. I, I imagine if a guy like uh, Slush or somebody were to call uh, you know, call Vladimir Vonderlaan or whatever and say, hey, I, I need XYZ done. I, I, I think you can get that done. But yeah, well, and for, I, for I don't know. Um, uh, historical purposes here for people, Slush is one of the original, like, oldest mining pools that is mining BTC. Yeah. I believe you can also mine Digibyte on it. Um, Slush has been around for quite some time now, to say the least. Um, but in, in that kind yeah. of vein, I actually think it was uh, Vertcoin who recently made a, a pull request to get one of the tests fixed in BTC Core. And hmm. they they had a small little celebration, and rightfully so, because in order to get anything pulled in to Bitcoin Core, it's not easy. They're, they're not going to accept anything just no. from anybody, really. So it's they, they celebrated that, and I think, you know, good on them. Um, but but sorry, as you were, as you were saying there about... So, so as far as implementations go, like I, at BTC, I believe is something to the effect of ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent Bitcoin yeah, Core implementation. There are like eight other implementations that actually exist, but it's like three nodes of each implementation exist on the entire network. So it's it's a little insignificant chunk. Um, here's the problem with that: if you're running an old version of Bitcoin Core, which is actually most nodes on the entire network are running old versions of Bitcoin Core. Yes. Uh, there are security flaws. There are bugs. There's various problems in the older Bitcoin Core implementations, including the hyperinflation bug, which was discovered about a year ago by a Bitcoin Cash developer. Let's yes. all applaud him. Um, he discovered that I, I, I think it, it was some kind of exponential hyperinflation bug. So I, yeah. like maybe 21 billion or 21 trillion Bitcoins were available uh, or would be accepted by the implementation. Uh, it, it didn't notice that and the problem is is it was a popular uh popular version and many nodes have not updated past it so there's a lot of nodes on btc right now that will accept inflated coins outside of the 21 million hard cap on btc and because there's only one implementation and the implementation is a monolith yep. you, you have to deal with what you get yeah. um well, it's interesting as well yeah. because like you mentioned it, it's still out there like the majority right are still running, I think, when was it? Was it in point zero one six when they fixed it? Uh, I want to say it was in one seven that it got fixed. I think one five or one six is where the bug got added. added. The yeah, bug is not so, an old I mean, bug, it was a newer bug. Yeah, it's, it's, it's in a roundabout, like somewhere around about a good 30 to 40% of all the nodes last time I checked. It was a little yeah. while when I last checked. It could have changed. But that's still a decent chunk of the network. Imagine forking off 40% of the network. Now, the downside is is that exactly. you would have to be mining and get your block included in. Um, I think, what was it? Is, it? is it like two blocks that you have to get added in or something similar? Or is it just the one uh, block? You need to find a block. I think, it, I think it's just one block. If you find a block that it breaks consensus rules, it should create a fork. 
So and that's obviously bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is kind of obviously diving into where having multiple different implementations is, is beneficial. Yeah. Um, having 21 trillion Bitcoin suddenly devalues the two that you hold and that you pay yeah. potentially a premium for. Um, so, right. Yeah. But and, and, the, and then in contrast, in, in contrast, so let me point out that Bitcoin Cash actually has the most diverse implementation schedule. So they have, uh, it's roughly 40% of nodes are uh, Bitcoin Unlimited implementation. Uh, there's a little more than 40%. It's, it's close to 50% is uh, Bitcoin ABC nodes. And then there's various other nodes, uh, Flowey the Hub, Bcash, and uh, Bitprim. There's a couple others that are, are for various commercial applications. But uh, Bitcoin Cash has a, has a wider set of implementations that run on their network. Um, they're contentious with each other a little bit, the, the developers of the software, obviously. Never. But, <laughs> yeah, but they, uh, they allow for different things. So if there is a catastrophic bug in Bitcoin ABC, the blocks aren't necessarily accepted by BU nodes, and then those BU nodes will just correct the network, and uh, it's, you know, which, presumably which it's sense. better. Yeah, it's, and it's, right. it's obviously that's going to be beneficial for everybody. So one of the things that we ran into with Digibyte was we were obviously, because we are a, a fork of the Bitcoin code base, that mm -hmm. bug impacted us as well. Uh, we were actually sure. the first altcoin outside of BCH and BTC to go and implement the fix, which was pretty cool. So hats off to the developers there. But sure. had we had multiple implementations, there wouldn't have been that mad rush to get out, get it updated, get it added, get it right. fixed get it rolled out to people because obviously like you said the network you've you've got other implementations that are hopefully not going to be affected by it sure yeah absolutely and it's not just core wallets that i suppose are should be diversified really one of, one of the things especially that we've been been talking about a lot in digibyte lately is the idea of having choice and having options and mm -hmm. That should apply to all wallets, I suppose, not just to your core wallet. Uh, what, what are your kind of your thoughts on that and around, I suppose, the broader variety? Are, are, are we then spreading ourselves too thin or? No, not necessarily. I, in fact, I, I think people should straight up compete with each other. If you have an idea uh, that you think is, is great, I don't know that you should necessarily push it into the core wallet for whatever coin you're working with. Like, build your own business, build something cool. Like, Get out there, compete with them. I, I think a healthy competition is what's good for every network. I, I believe fundamentally the most important thing that Bitcoin can do is teach people to compete with each other. Like Bitcoin, from mining to the culture and, and everything else, should be about maximizing your rational individual self-interest because that should, in theory, benefit the network the most. Uh, it may not benefit the individual like maybe you were the guy who three years ago had the most popular wallet and were making some money off of it or something and now yeah. you are no longer that guy <laughs> sorry welcome to to capitalism uh th these are these these networks are capitalist systems they, that's what they're designed off of they're designed off of the game theory of a free market sure yeah yeah and and that's <laughs> that's a really good point talking about like the competition because obviously at the end of the day that's what and although this is a, this is a rather controversial opinion, in, especially inside of uh, crypto Twitter, where everybody is touchy feely and everything is yeah. nice and zen, and we're all going to sit around and sing kumbaya, ultimately, yeah. 
every single blockchain out there is competition for Bitcoin, is competition for yep. SV, is competition for Digibyte. Even if you don't specifically have the same mining algorithm, take for example, if we were to say like Vertcoin, Vertcoin is a, a competition for Digibyte because those miners, those graphics cards could instead be mining on another project. Um, sure. And in that vein, I guess now's probably a really good time to talk a little bit about competition from BSV versus BTC and how you think that competition is kind of evolving. Well, it's it's interesting. So for the longest time, there was this uh, concept that you know that you've got this means of exchange use case versus this store of value use case, and yeah. that all growth needs to come from that. So you have the BTC store of value folks are. Hey, we we need an ETF. We need a uh, you know we need backed. We need futures contracts. We need that institutional money to to show up and make our make our you know whatever make our store of value more valuable. Yeah. Um. So that's the way that they see value in growing their network because the the true value of BTC is its price. Like the price is what makes its mining profitable, and it's what makes the whole culture of BTC function. It is a a coin that is based entirely on the fiat value for which it can be exchanged. Uh, that's why it's the main trading pair and, and everything yeah. else. That's it's digital gold. That's the narrative that they've created. Now the means of exchange narrative um, primarily focused on like, well, but I can't buy a cup of coffee with it, or I can't go to the grocery store. Or I can't, <laughs> you know, whatever like, cryptocurrencies need velocity and they need to be spent and you should be, you know, you should be making 50 transactions a day and that's what's good for the network. So then you have a completely different set of rules there. Um, totally the, contrasting. Like, right. The, right. They're, they're divergent from each other. And then, of course, you get into arguments, you know, where like, well, you don't believe in saving at all. And, well, you don't believe in spending at all. And, yes, you've got people in these yeah. ridiculous edge case camps. <laughs> and <laughs> I've I've changed my view on it a little bit that... Um, where I think Bitcoin Cash was so focused on just that sort of retail commercial payments use case, it kind of ignores the fact that, you know, you shouldn't really be spending sound money on frivolous things. Sound money should encourage you to spend less than you earn. So you need to be earning more, saving more, spending like you do need to spend, but you should only really be spending on things that you need and it should get rid of the sort of frivolous consumerism that fiat money pushes us toward. Sure. Um, I can understand so not that, to, yeah. So that's, you know, so what that means is like, okay, spend your Bitcoin on premium coffee that you brew at home because that <laughs> is something valuable as opposed to spending, you know, something that's marked up 800% and it's sugar Starbucks, right? So right. that would be a that would be a more frivolous choice. And Bitcoin should push us toward making more conscientious and a little more economically sound decisions, but also still spending. If we're to use it as money, it needs to be regular. You know, I, I would still expect to be making a, a few transactions a day, and that's BTC has not gone that direction. But I also don't want to be on an absolute spending spree because. <laughs> that will hurt me in the long term because the the the, the course of sound money should be upward. Sure. And, yeah, know, of so course. There's the healthy balance. So then that brings us to the SV use cases. So Bitcoin SV has sort of changed. Like, yes, it's cash. It's it's cash that should be buying simple things in retail, but it's also 
think of it as a toll to access this sort of worldwide supercomputer of interconnectivity in that we can be powering social media apps or video. You can be monetizing things on the blockchain that have a sort of digital value that you can be communicating in a digital economy, but they aren't necessarily a retail payment. Like I'm not going and buying gym shoes, but I may be buying rights to a piece of art or sure. you know a song or something like that that can be completely distributed within the Bitcoin blockchain and then paid for in Bitcoins and you know the stream is fueled by Bitcoin transactions, just all of that. So you get this kind of everything is Bitcoin, um, <laughs> which is which is a new paradigm, but it it really isn't because it's something that Satoshi absolutely talked about. There's quotes of Satoshi talking about like yeah it should be you know think about putting tokens in a slot machine for like at an adult website or some video yeah. streaming or vending or machines and things send- I think he's mentioned as well and and, and the likes. And, Email. He even talked about fueling an email system atop Bitcoin. So, which is where Hashcash originally came from. That that idea, which right. loosely it was based upon. Sorry, just Zoom is being yep. interesting here, and we're kind of getting frames missing from you. I'm not too sure what oh, is doing. Hmm. But we'll carry on though. Yeah. So so, anyways, yeah, you know the the use cases in there, you know, it really drives culture and, and it informs yeah. the way that you use, you know, or even the way that you view Bitcoin. You know, some people view Bitcoin as savings technology, and other people view it as spending technology, whereas other people would view it as a development platform upon which to build other value. And and you know, none yeah. of them are necessarily wrong, but. Uh, ultimately, the marketplace and the hash power and everything else will pilfer out to whatever is the most profitable to the miner. I, I believe a miner should act in his best interest long term. Yeah. Uh, well, we need to ESP. expect them to be selfish and we need to expect them to be. Yes. It's a permissionless network. So you have to expect the worst out of everybody and expect that in a permissionless mm. network, there will be bad actors who will act in their own self-interest or in your not best interests even but again we're kind of we come back to that whole everything is a competition so although not everything like you say needs to be done on for example the bitcoin core blockchain in terms of they only have approximately what what are they at the moment i think it's 4.6 4.7 transactions per second in terms of their actual genuine throughput yeah in theory it could hit seven but I, i don't know that that works in practice I mean, that's that's presuming that every single transaction is XYZ bytes large with just your yep. one input, which goes to one output or uh, sort of two Correct. outputs. 100%, 100% use of SegWit and, and all kinds yeah. of other things. Yeah. In theory, in a perfect situation, BTC is capable of seven transactions a second. Never going to happen, though. So at the moment, in terms of if we look at a, at a realistic expectation of that throughput, yeah, I think it's around about maybe it's even 4.5, give or take. Um, sure. I think they managed to cram that, the right most too. transactions they ever have just recently into a single one megabyte block, which has bumped it up ever so slightly. But it's, I mean, we're talking yeah. it was an extra like two transactions or something over 10 minutes. But Sure. It, yep. it, it again comes back to that uh, competition. And it's interesting to kind of, I, I like that idea. Not not so much like a competition as in like we're butting heads and we're angry with each other, but we're we're competing on the same merits here for people to use us, for people to buy it, for people to want to store their data 
and that transaction and that additional metadata for effectively the rest of time, really. Right. Sure. How much then, in terms of like, if we're talking about storing things for the rest of time, how much value do you think that needs to be placed on the the, the transaction itself? And and do you think that miners should be rejecting certain transactions, perhaps as well? What what are your thoughts on that kind of? Um. Yeah. You know. I mean, you got to think about it from their position. Like they're the ones that are investing the most in the network. They have the most stake in the network. Um, it's in their best interest to provide a valuable service. So we should expect them to do that, like provide services that make them the most profit. And, you know, we're, we're starting to see that a little bit. We're starting to see a little bit of divergence in the way that hash power behaves between the three implementations or the three split blockchains of, of Bitcoin. So um, BTC, we're starting BCH, to see, BSV. Correct. So, you know, we're seeing more and more. Um, it's just raw hash power that goes at BTC. Yeah. Um, because it doesn't matter, right? They don't need hyper-connectivity. They just need a lot of security because the, the chain is holding a lot of value. Sure. Um, on BSV, we're starting to see a big separation and actually kind of a debate internally about the nature of how we even should be connecting to the blockchain and what are those services supposed to look like? So let's say I'm doing some kind of specialized video service. Well, I would, I would want to have really, really uh, closely connected, uh, like good fiber optic internet and be as closely connected to other miners as I, as I possibly can. Sure. But I may not want to have a ton of hash power. I may not actually need it because I may even turn it off. Um, and the reason is, is, well, if I don't have a lot of demand, I shouldn't be wasting the money because I'm not in this to necessarily be finding the most blocks but I'm trying to instead charge a specific fee for a specific service that benefits a specific business model in which I am specializing. And therefore, I will come to know who my customer is and I will serve them more directly while not trying to compete with, say, you know, Jihan Wu, who is very, very poorly connected but has more ASIC power than anybody else. Sure. Uh, but he but he gets kicked offline all the time, so I could never stream a service from him. But I do want to benefit from his security that is caused by his general uh, hash power rather than his specialized hash power. Sure. So we could see the, and we're starting to see this on BSV as you start to see a little bit of a sort of sawtooth pattern to the hash power and the nature of you know what they're actually working on, what they're testing, uh, and who's using the blockchain for what at a given time. So I think that's a, it's a really interesting divergence in culture that you can see just in the hash power now. And of course, like BSV has about 1% of the hash power of BTC in total. So these things are a little more, you know, you can see the little spikes and, and that yeah. kind of stuff too, but it's, it's relevant and it's a relevant piece of new economic data that deserves to be analyzed. Right. I mean, uh, how much of that as well do you think is also going to be affected by the fact that it is also still using an implementation of DigiShield, which is adjusting it every single block as opposed to every two weeks with BTC, for example? Because we, we see sure. a similar thing uh, with, with Digibyte, with it going up and down to match. It's interesting. Like, DigiShield... Conceptually, it is a tool that allows a minority hash power chain to function. Yeah. And 
that's great when you're the minority ash power chain. I think ultimately <laughs> the the goal the, the goal of BSV anyways is to ultimately orphan BCH and BTC and go back to having a uh, a difficulty adjustment like BTCs where it adjusts out uh, on a a per a much longer per block basis that shakes out to roughly two weeks typically. But um, so why you know, do you for, think they would the want me- to go back to that, back to something that's specifically slower? Do you, what, what do you think that that offers? Well, it offers more competitiveness. Like, miners should be able to fight each other. Like, here's the thing. Like, BCH and BSV, in my opinion, should not have split from BTC. I, I think that's a bit of an abdication. I, I didn't support the hard fork and, and replay protection because it's ultimately... You know, you're you're treating Bitcoin and Bitcoin's rules as if they're arbitrary, and I understand why it happened. And it was because it was essentially a coup d'état in in the Bitcoin community, and where all actors are bad actors, and and nobody could trust anybody. So, I, so I understand why it happened. But all of that, like the the Digi Shield, I think they call it DAA uh, in in Bitcoin, but dynamic um, adjustment algorithm, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I believe that's what they're, I think that's what they call it. I could be wrong, <laughs> but um, in, in the mindset of BSV, there shouldn't be a thousand chains. There shouldn't even be five chains. There should be a single global chain. And then that changes the way that the miners are competing with each other. So the difficulty adjustment should have a broader, uh, time for you know if if hash power blasts in and blasts out it's not necessarily just going to be wigging out the the difficulty adjustment that you know like like i was saying a a miner should be able to jump in and push a bunch of hash power in to do a specialty thing without it changing the difficulty adjustment immediately like there because there are reasons why you know maybe we want six blocks to go out in the next 10 minutes and that's okay or maybe we want 50 blocks to go out in an hour for specific reasons and that kind of can't happen assuming that we've got this dynamic difficulty adjustment that that doesn't let us do that but again it exists because of the the situation that we're in now so it makes sense for that to be there now but at scale you want to be able to say like we need to just push 50 blocks out like we need to clear the mempool maybe maybe it's black friday right and Transactions went from a million a day to two billion a day, right. and holy crap! But but if the difficulty adjustment just keeps fighting you, you can't clear that mempool fast enough. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? So it's like, yeah. Sorry, carry on. So just conceptually, like yes, Digi Shield is great for BCH and BSV in the short term, but at scale, you really want to have a longer period of difficulty adjustment because you should be able to let the miners make decisions like that. Like, Hey, we need to blast a bunch blocks out for X, Y, Z reasons. There, there are reasons to do it. Right. But if they then need to go and do that, and if they need to send out, let's say they do that 50 blocks in an hour, mm. when that difficulty then kicks in and expects that higher hash rate to be there. And all of a sudden it's, it's not, especially if you say they've brought this in temporarily. Now, all of a sudden your blocks that were, going to be previously 10 minutes and then have been increased to one minute blocks because you've effectively 10 x your your hash rate. Right. Sure. Now you're going to be finding them instead of every 10 minutes, you're going to be finding them every 
90 to 100 minutes, and so you're going to get one block every hour and a half. Sure. But that would only be if you're cranking up the heat as the difficulty adjustment is coming in, right? So if well, we have it averages it out for the whole previous two-week amount. Right. So it expects right. it to so, be. So it won't, so it won't quite be make, like 10 times. It won't quite be nine times. But, right. but you know what right. I mean. So, so, but again, you have to make a rational decision, and there are rational things to do with a longer uh, difficulty adjustment versus with the shorter one. It doesn't doesn't matter, right? Like sure. anybody can jump in. Like right now, you know, Jihan Wu could point all of his hash power at BSV, and it'll just you know it'll just adjust for it, and it's okay. So it's they both just like neither is necessarily good or bad. It just completely Different. changes the economics of the network. Yeah. yeah. But the flip side, I guess, especially if you're so if you are BSV and you're going to be churning out those blocks, let's say you take that 10x. What what are, what are your blocks at the moment? Two gig blocks. Uh, the the limit is two gig right now. Yeah, right. the hard limit. Yeah, that's going to need some serious computing power if you're doing fifty of those in an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wonder, like, the, I mean, the the fundamentals of that are, are something that are fun to think about. Like, how many of those then nodes are subsequently equipped to handle that kind of if you've got a two gig block, how many how many transactions are you fitting into that one two gig block? Like a, a couple of billion, maybe. Uh oh gosh, total transactions, yeah, it's some absurd number. It, it I know it's good for between nine thousand and fourteen thousand transactions a second. So that's. Uh, <laughs> Let me quickly bring up the calculator here. Okay, so if we go fourteen thousand times six hundred, okay, so it's eight eight point four million transactions in in a block. Yeah. And then you're multiplying that by 50 blocks. So just just over half a billion. Uh, sorry, just under half a billion. Yeah. Surely there, there, there shouldn't be that much of a limit, I guess, for, for CPU power going through and processing them all and validating them. Right. We should test it, it out. It, <laughs> we should, well, there is, there is a BSV stress test coming on September 30th. So if you okay. guys want to pay attention, the, the goal is to create some... Uh, some some blocks that we don't know what everybody's soft caps are all the different miners there's theories so like we do know that like via btc has an eight megabyte soft cap right now right so they can't mine a block bigger than that but we do know uh that some of them were turned up to 512 megabytes for a soft cap uh and there's theories that well maybe one or two of these pools actually is gonna go with the two gig cap so Let's just see what we can do. Let's see how much data we can push out, and let's see how big the blocks can get. So, Again, though, those are, are self-imposed, though, so that's not something that the network specifically restricts them on. Like you see with via BTC, that's them going, we only want to process 8 megabyte blocks, and if we happen yeah. to get more than that 8 megabytes worth of transactions, they'll stay out there in the mempool, and someone else can grab them in the next block. Exactly. Right. So, and, and, that's, and the reason for that, via BTC is in mainland China, and like I was saying earlier about their lack of connectivity, yep. if they mine a you know, a 50 megabyte block, they might not be able to propagate it to the rest of the network in order to, to build off of. So yep. that's that's the issue there. Whereas CoinGeek uh, has much better connectivity because they are in Western Europe. Right. And, you know, for them, they're like, Psh, man, we can blast out 512 megabyte blocks back to back all freaking day. Right. So that's the, you know. Well, because a 512 meg block, especially even if you're only connected to, let's say, two dozen different nodes, by the time you factor that in, that's, what are we? A couple gigs worth. Yeah, so two dozen is going to be 12 yeah. gigs worth. 12 gigs in, in 10 minutes is certainly doable. Sure. 
yeah, I mean, it's 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 a lot. Like, it's a very big number in the cryptocurrency space. But yeah, I don't know that anybody's thinking twelve gigs is a big number in any other capacity. I, I don't no. like if I were to go buy a twelve gig thumb drive, people would ask where I got my like two thousand six thumb drive, right? Yeah, like you you can't get them anymore. <laughs> like in New Zealand, the smallest that we do is sixteen. So if you want an eight gig, right. most of the time, unless you're buying it from like a little boutique like uh, right. store like a, 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 on, on the side of the mall who've had them for like a decade now you, you can't get them right. yeah <laughs> yeah the, the, the dust bin <laughs> yeah and, and so I mean I guess that's kind of interesting as well when you stop and you think about it so that that 12 megabyte let's say hypothetically they did a bunch of them back to back two dozen of them that 12 12 gigabytes sorry is give or take roughly the same size as the entire digibyte blockchain stands <laughs> like right now, if if you yeah. don't have indexing turned on, I think we're actually closer to like thirteen, fourteen, maybe. But right, I mean, it's 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 funny to stop and think about it as well and go, twelve gigs actually not that much. Like if you're going to stream a movie, if you're going to stream something off of Amazon, and you're going to watch it in ten eighty p, you're probably looking yeah. five to eight gigs. Give yeah, I was going to say I, I think it would be a little under ten gigs is is yeah. what a typical. Yeah, HD movie would be. And people will do that all day, every day. I know, like, living with, with uh, my wife watches a lot of television online. Uh, I've got a, three other flatmates. They also watch a ton. I myself happen to be a great big consumer of the YouTubes. And so sure. between the five of us, yeah, we, we can sometimes, we can quite happily push 100 gigs every day, every single sure. day, and not even right. blink an eye. Obviously, we're kind of more of an extreme basket case, and this is kind of... Uh, where I want to take the the discussion, I suppose, to the the decentralization of the distribution of it, because obviously, as your your block size grows, not everybody's going to now be able to mine on a Raspberry Pi, which I know is one of your sure. favorite favorite <laughs> my, my memes. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So not everybody's going to be able to run it on a Raspberry Pi, especially if they've gone and hooked up that one one terabyte USB. It's not going right. to last forever. Um, what are your thoughts around the, the distribution of the, the blockchain as a whole? Because that's one of the things where Bitcoin is obviously at the moment the biggest. They have the most nodes that right. are out there. I think in terms of recent nodes is somewhere around about 10,000 that are, that are active. Yeah. And if you scan right. the network, you'll get around about 10,000 currently online right now. Sure. What are your thoughts on increasing the block size and how that obviously impacts that and the distribution, the decentralization of the whole entire network? Are we opening ourselves up to civil attacks and other things? What are your thoughts? So let's start by how Satoshi defined a node, because the way that people understand nodes today is not the way that Satoshi defined a node. So when you read the word node in the white paper or ever coming out of the, the fingertips of Satoshi on Bitcoin Talk or wherever else, Satoshi meant a miner when he said node. Now, I know it was very different back then. These were GPU and CPU mining situation. Like yep. hobby miners were able to find blocks every day uh, back then. But Satoshi was very clear. In fact, he, he, he said specialized hardware in server farms will replace this. He mentioned server farms. It's one of the things I also remember when reading, reading some of his earlier posts, like on Bitcoin Talk, was he mentions server farms not just a yeah. server with a bunch of hard drives or a raspberry pi with a usb device attached he specifically mentions right. server farms yeah he he believed in the advent of commercial mining operations that that's what made sense to him that was 
in his mind in the design of the network. In fact, he has the quote where he mentions server farms, uh, that, that term specifically. He, well, he says server farms and specialized hardware in the same sentence, meaning not CPUs and not GPUs, like yeah. meaning ASICs. Yeah. Um, he mentions because them they bring in, the most security. Exactly. But he mentioned this in November of 2008, which any Satoshi historian or Bitcoin historian will know was before Bitcoin ever mined a block. So before Bitcoin even actually physically existed, Satoshi was picturing massive mining operations. So <laughs> this notion that oh, Satoshi wanted everyone to mine and, you know, one CPU, one vote meant you know, literally me and you should all have a vote because we had 60 bucks to buy a Raspberry Pi. Yes, Roger. Um, yeah, right. That is, not, that is not what Satoshi imagined. Sure. Satoshi was all about competition. He believed in the constant hash war of Bitcoin, that we should be clawing at each other to be the best miner, to be the, the central hub of the network. Mm. And it's that competition to become the central miner that makes Bitcoin more and more secure because if everyone can mine and if everyone has an equal opportunity to earn a block, then there's no reason for me to invest any more than anybody else in the security of the network. So we have to be able to get an edge if we invest an edge, right? So now I don't even remember what your question was. Um, it was a really good. We were on a great tirade, though. We 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 were headed somewhere awesome. No, um, in terms of the like the does this affect the distribution of the blockchain? Oh, and are yes, we opening ourselves up yes, yes, to yes. things like Sybil attacks and the like? Yes. So so with my 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 prelude uh, settled. Um, Here's the history behind it. Yes. So when we talk about nodes, BTC has ten thousand. It has like nine thousand plus nodes that contribute no work to the network. In fact, it is actually taking away resources of the network in order to serve them blocks. Now, everybody talks about like, well, I have to validate my own blocks. The problem is, is that they can't build on those blocks and therefore they're not actually validating those blocks at all because anyone who's read the white paper knows that you validate a block by building on top of it. And a node that can't build a block is not a node, according to Satoshi. So I, I I like to call them listening nodes because yeah. they can hear they can hear the whole blockchain they can download it they can look at the whole blockchain so it's a it's but you a, can it's only a tele- be told you can't correct you can be served Bitcoin however you don't have the ability to write to Bitcoin you don't have that in a listening node in reality there are only about twenty five nodes in a given month that can write to the BTC blockchain. And we all know who they are. They're, they're BTC top, they're via BTC, it's Antpool, I actually slush. have an exact statistic for you on that one, if you'll, if you'll humor me yeah, for a let's... second while I bring this up. Because I ran this recently, I'm not too sure if you saw this on, on Twitter when I shared it. I'm, I think I did, actually, but I don't remember the number. So if we look, do you want, do you want to look at a three-month or a seven-day period? Uh, let's do three months. Let's let's take the bigger sample. Three months? Okay, three months sample yeah. size. Over three months, over 12,500 blocks, BTC had 60 unique miners that were contributing to the network. The there remaining 10,000? Listening. Yeah. We did Litecoin, uh, over 50k blocks, had 251. Digibyte with 500k blocks had 1,295. Interesting. Uh, 
And those are individual nodes which found a block. Correct. Interesting. That's fascinating. So in that regard, I would say that Digibyte is more decentralized than BTC. And the reason Running for on it, one core wallet software. Well, sure. <laughs> so let's, but, let's take but, the good with the bad here, and we'll, we'll chalk that up as something that needs to be addressed. Yes, sorry, but yeah. as you were saying. <laughs> so, then, so then Sybil attacks, right? And Sybil attack is something that people talk about all the time. I feel like people don't understand what a Sybil attack is. So a Sybil attack is... Um, Let's see. What is the right? <laughs> I might actually need your help with this a little bit. So it's so basically it's, where you isolate a node effectively, right? You so you cut a node out of the network, and you have the node tell the other node something that is not true about the the rule set of the network, basically. So it's it is a lying node that people think is an honest node, and it's yeah. not. Um, <laughs> that's the that is the most simple dumb version of a civil attack between the two of us we're both aware that's not 100 percent accurate about what it is <laughs> if you want to dive into the technicals but for in terms of layman's terms that's basically what it is if i were to instead of like let's take for example digibyte at 9.5 million blocks instead of those mm-hmm. 9.5 million when your node connects it finds another one that has 9.49 million but slightly different transactions or, or something and so it believes that something different has happened right because you have more of these other nodes that are able to kind of isolate it. Correct. And it's and it's a partial social attack as well. So it requires tricking the user of the node as well to believe that they're doing the right thing for a certain amount of time until you can fracture the network to a point that it can't be fixed. Um, and a lot of it is definitely overhyped, especially in terms of the general vulnerability of a blockchain to that kind of attack, right. especially when it comes to proof of work. Right. But it's something worth being aware of as well. And, and so I kind of wanted to ask, again, back to the whole block size, what are your thoughts on how that's going to impact things? Like, I guess that was where we were for the... For, well, okay. Before we diverge so three times. So for, yeah. So let, let me, yeah, let's settle the Sybil attack thought. Um, <laughs> in, my, in my opinion, the UASF governance model of BTC is a Sybil attack. And it was attempted, it was pitched that way as like, no, actually, we're the nodes that govern the network. Proof of work is essentially just a, a notary service. They're, they're, they're like our time stamping service, but they work for us. We're the important nodes. Well, that's a, that's a governance change. That is not written anywhere. That's a social change that is pushed out by nodes that are essentially being dishonest because that's just a, you know, that's like saying, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm I'm trans Kurt. I can be whatever I want. I'm you know I've changed my name to Ashley, and I'm a female. And some people will accept that and say he has every right to do that, and that's his that's his self governance model. And lots of people will say he does not have the right to do that because it violates his biology. Sure. And so th- so that now we have this like, well, which rule set actually matters, right? And that's subjective. So we have moved away from the objective truths of whatever it was that was established before, and we're moving into the subjective uh, situation. And that's what I believe UASF is. So I believe that is the Sybil attack vector of the small block narrative that everyone needs to be able to have the whole chain and participate in the governance, even if they only have $60 worth of hardware that they've invested in the network. Um, and that that's that's my my problem with small blocks with big blocks it it creates 
a competitive incentive across the board that everyone needs to be out competing. You need to be providing proof of work to have any opinion in the governance of the network at all. And anyone that is not contributing proof of work doesn't have the skin in the game to, to have an opinion. So it's, it's sort of like only a landowner is allowed to vote. Like that was something that was common in Western Europe and, and the United States for a long time until we had various revolutions saying, no, we need to let poor people vote and women vote and former slaves vote and all of that. And now we have a much more open democratic process, but we have allowed somebody that has absolutely no skin in the game. In fact, you can allow someone to vote for a raise out of the government dole. And I would argue that that is not the best thing for uh, a limited economy. If, if there is only finite resources, somebody that is contributing no work should not be able to vote for more food, property, and, sure. and other things from, from the productive class. So, again, that's very political, but... Uh, that's it's, essentially it's a, what we have here. Right. It's, it's so, the same thing. So I believe that um, big blocks are not centralizing, and, and the reason is that people need to compete for blocks, period. Now, if one guy is only able to compete for blocks of a certain size, then that just incentivizes other people to to build a better miner. Like, he has to remain competitive in order to stay the center of the network. Yeah. But if he if he gets lazy, like we've seen with Jihan Wu over the last two years, he was the king of Bitcoin mining two years ago. Yep. He's closed half of his worldwide empire. He had to liquidate tons of his mining operation all through 2018. He lost his IPO. In fact, Jihan Wu himself had to step down as CEO of Bitmain. Yes. And, you know, so we saw a guy who was you know, the king of the network, and he didn't reinvest properly. And he's been taken down several notches to the point where now the biggest hash power owners of the network are arguably BTC top uh, and BTC.com. They mine a lot of blocks where they were a much smaller miner just two years ago. Yeah. And then we've seen the, the giant incoming of the Squire coin geek group, which are the main people that are behind BSV and they have a ton of hash power. And nobody saw him coming. Everybody said, well, who's going to beat Jihan Wu? Well, (laughs) here it is. Jihan Wu beat himself. But arguably, that's the network behaving as it should, behaving as it was originally intended, behaving as it is best served by incentivizing Mm -hmm. somebody else to come along. And again, this is the competition both within the the blockchain itself, but also within the the broader spectrum of all SHA-256 projects. Absolutely. It's that competition. I, I kind of, I, so I want to swing this back a little bit though to, if, in terms of, you mentioned obviously the server farms and things like that. And so I know that we're going to have a lot of viewers who are going to be watching this going, great, server farms. I can't run one at home. How does my yeah. wallet know that this is valid? So what are your thoughts on the idea of a SPV wallet versus a wallet that uses a node, say for example, like, if, if we're talking about like Coinomi, for example, where, where you sure. use their node rather than an SPV yeah. wallet, which finds a node. So, so API versus SPV, essentially, right? Basically. I think, well, well, it's a couple things. So your first question, sorry, if you don't have money and you don't have a business opportunity in mind and you don't have some kind of value that you intend to provide to the network, you don't have business mining in the first place. And 
sorry. You know, I, I, I would like to be John DeLorean and, and build cool cars, but that's just not in the cards unless I do something amazing and get a bunch of venture capital and make that happen. That's business. And yeah. sorry, not everybody gets to own a car company either. And We're not giving out participation trophies here. Exactly. Because that's not what's best for the network. And, and what matters in this situation is what's best for the network. So... That gives you the opportunity then to, to perhaps build a business doing something else. Maybe provide some kind of service that other people want to use your blockchain, your blockchain of choice uh, for. Build those tools. Build tools that people need to pay you to use in order to use some service that you've created. I mean, think about if you were the inventor of YouTube. Like the, He didn't get to invent the internet. He didn't get to be Comcast or AT&T or, or Verizon. But he did get to be the creator of YouTube, and that's that's that sort of second layer service. Like, right. you don't need to be an ISP to be a valid participant in the economy. Build a business on top of it. Build a business on top of the tools that exist. Uh, in in BSV, there's a few examples of that. Actually, there's uh, Unwriter, who is building just an unbelievable amount of software he's, that allows he's building a lot. I've, I've, since you mentioned it, I've started following him as well. And yeah, interesting, it, very interesting fellow. Very interesting. And, you know, and so what's he doing? He's incorporating a business in New York City right now in order to provide various services through all kinds of systems that you can build on top of. So he's not a miner at all. He has no hash power, but he's a businessman and he's, he's a talented programmer. So he's going to take his skill and he's going to provide it to the open market and hopefully make money. And so that's that's my you know, that's my response to, oh, but I wanted to be a miner. Like, sorry. Um, when it comes to API versus SPV, it, go ahead. Do you have a comment? Well, I was going to say, anybody can be a miner. That's the thing is, is there's no, there's still no rules saying, no, you cannot be a miner. We're not going to allow right. it. Here's the wall. You, you, you're not allowed to cross through that door. Both, right. especially BSV and Digibyte are permissionless networks. You can simply be a miner. You're welcome to be a miner. But if you want to mine your CPU, you're sweet out of luck because you're not going to contribute <laughs> enough to the network. I mean, let's right. be honest. You could get insanely, insanely lucky. Sure. <laughs> it's plausible. I mean, this is why people play the lotto for 50 years, too. <laughs> like, it could happen. It could. So, <laughs> yeah. And then to your second point, the sort of API, and I should preface that almost every wallet anybody uses is fed by API. Um, this is all your major, you know, Exodus and Jack's wallet and Coinomy and yep. yeah. Uh, so please don't think this is me just specifically picking on just the the Coinomy here. This is this is right. most almost every yeah. single wallet out there. Right. Uh, as opposed to connecting to SPV, which is connecting directly to the blockchain uh, with a system that was developed by Satoshi Nakamoto himself. This is how Satoshi recommended that a light wallet work. Uh, he's actually quoted. He had, a, he had a, a, a number of quotes about the necessity of SPV for the sake of scale. Now, the problem with SPV is it's, it's quite a bit more complex on the back end. Uh, so you need more talented developers to build a, uh, a user interface on top of it to make it more functional. Yep. But once it's there, it can't be knocked offline. So, you know, anybody that's used a light wallet will go to send a coin at some point in their life and you'll get error. Well, what the hell, you know, and then you go check Twitter and then the wallet person of your choice, you know, let, let's let's say it's Jack's wallet or Exodus says, 
sorry, if you were trying to send, you know, Litecoin around, our node popped offline and yep. we weren't serving transactions for 30 minutes. But we rebooted and you're good. You can send your coins now. Yep. Well, that won't happen with SPV. So it's, it's a lot more work on the front end to design an SPV wallet that works with a good user interface. Uh, but then it's much, 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 much more reliable uh, in most situations. It's as reliable as the blockchain you're using. So that's the that's the trade-off. So the flip side really as well depends. is the sync time, I suppose, versus instant. Well, SPV should be instant too. Like that's the thing is you don't necessarily need to validate. This is this obsession with everybody validating their own transactions, which I think is silly. If I'm sending you money, it's up to you to validate the transaction that you've received it. Yeah. That's it. It's not really incumbent upon me. I don't really care, especially yeah. if it's, you know, 20 bucks, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> it's, like it's how much time do you spend validating a $20 transaction? Well, hopefully it's quite a bit less than $20 worth of time. Uh, SPV uses um, Merkle proofs. So as long as you uh, accept that the Merkle tree is is a valid cryptographic structure that we can trust. <laughs> and if you trust the mining algorithm of the network, SPV does everything you need it to, and it does it instantly. And you don't need to download the whole blockchain. Yep. Um, that's, <laughs> that just is what it is. That only, in my opinion, as far as I'm aware, that only really irks BTC people who, who deem it necessary to not trust that Merkle proofs are valid because, you know, maybe somebody, maybe somebody did whatever. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because when you think about, when you think about how a wallet works, <laughs> this, is, this is something I, I'm actually toying with this recently in my own mind. Like how to explain why the way that we use wallets is insane, right? So yeah. like if I were to send you, let's say I sent you a $10 worth of Digibyte. Rather than you doing your own validation through an SPV wallet, to check and see what we do is we query the entire both of us query the entire blockchain in order to show where this transaction is is it still in the mempool or has it been mined or how many blocks away is it but but that's a really weird way to do it that we're spending all this time querying the whole network because spv would connect you directly to it as if you are a mining node but you're not so it's connecting Straight. It is that's a peer transaction as opposed to APIs and various levels of other people's nodes right. and infrastructure and everything else. <laughs> so, but it's it's funny because all of this existed ten years ago, and nobody used it. Just people, other software people showed up and they're like, "Well, I'll just connect with an API and I'm going to build this the way I want because that's what they were familiar with. They didn't understand Bitcoin and therefore they didn't use Bitcoin." And so they, they have this sort of third-party connection to what Bitcoin is even capable of doing. And by Bitcoin, I mean this generally, like any UTXO work chain. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's, we're just, it's, it's like a cultural change. It's, it's it, you know, as an American, I look and think back, like, what would it be like if I lived in 1776? Like, what if I was of the generation of, you know, the revolution and, and all of these things? Like, you know, we fought this war and then we had this founding father, Alexander Hamilton, who was like, yeah, but we could use an aristocracy. So we should set up a Supreme Court and a central bank and all these different things. It's like, but why? Like, we just, <laughs> we invented this new thing and we're not going to try it. We're just not going to try the new thing that we created because it's pretty great. 
and then you know, and then we have this this brilliant American Republic in name only, much the same way that we use Bitcoin in name only. When in reality, we're just using a bunch of other people's cloud servers and and everything else. We're not even doing peer transactions and, and all of the stuff that Bitcoin yeah. is capable of that nobody's even tried. So there's there's my rant. <laughs> yeah, we knew it was gonna come eventually. <laughs> so- yeah. In terms of, like, if we were to wrap this up, though, and in terms of looking forward, what would you have to say specifically about BTC or specifically SV? Are you most excited mm-hmm. about the way things are headed? What gets you really, really amped for the way that things are going and the way that things are headed, like that direction in general? What, what? I, I love how much people are interacting with Bitcoin apps in the BSV universe that it's the only community that I'm aware of that is focused on use cases. So rather than working our way back from how do I create value for the coins that I hold, they're trying to say, how can I create an external business value for which I can receive more coins? Right. And that's, that, that's a business mindset. And I don't see it in any other place. I, I see reasons for your coin to pump from every other community. And, you know, in, in SV, we have, you know, these these various like social media apps like uh, Twitch or Bitstagram are money making apps for the founders that incentivize social media in, in a specific way on chain. And that's cool. But there's also a couple of interesting projects. One is Weather SV and the other is um, Uptime SV. And, and both are, are really they're unique from each other. But what Weather SV is doing is it's collecting weather data using a bunch of Oracle services and all the general weather service stuff that exists out there. And that's what it's criticized for is like, why is this on chain if all this exists elsewhere? Well, on chain, what they want to do is create a chain of custody uh, that shows exactly how the weather affects agriculture so that the agriculture can be tracked from farm to table. Mm -hmm. And then you can have all of that collected data about what weather created which conditions created which food which created which profitability because all of that data on chain allows you to crunch it in such a way that i I can go to the store and scan an orange and i know everything that occurred to that orange if if that's what matters to me but from a data science immutability obviously like over time is going to be invaluable as we start to look like 50 to 100 years Yes, and the next generation, like your son, your 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 son's kids, for example, will be able to say, "We right. know that this happened. We right. have immutable proof." Yes, and that's the point. Is that my hope is that generationally, people won't even necessarily believe that something happened if it didn't occur on chain. That we'll talk about, like you know, P- President Roosevelt. Like, did he even exist? Can we even verify it? There was no blockchain. <laughs> I, I, I mean that, though. I, I, I want generationally for that to be the situation, that, that Bitcoin is, is a truth machine and anything that isn't on chain is questionable. Sure. That, that, that changes a lot of things. So the other, time, the other thing that I mentioned was Uptime SV. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're doing is they're allowing everyone to run an Uptime node. So you can do it on your phone, you can do it on your computer. And what it's doing is it's monitoring the uptime of other commercial websites so the clients would come to you just and other companies offer the service, but Bitcoin SV allows it to function with microtransactions to allow me to be monitoring. Let's say I'm monitoring Motorola.com that I'm querying their page 
constantly and seeing exactly what its uptime is. And however much power that I put to doing that, I get paid for in microtransactions. And Motorola is just paying fiat to the company. And so to them, they're not like, I'm joining the Bitcoin revolution. They're just getting a service that's being provided in a distributed means by the abilities of the network. That's and cool. so that's right. You know, so that's a, that's a really good use for a, a high bandwidth uh, blockchain. And that's, uh, and, it, and it's actually really simple, but it provides real value to the real economy. And it's, it's a good business idea and it's, it's recently launched and they're putting transactions on chain, which is giving value to the miners and giving yeah. the value to the rest of everyone else. And so that's, that's the kind of thing that, in my opinion, really matters. That's the direction that I want to see the culture going because that's, that's real value. Create yeah. business. Create something that I want to buy. And yeah. I, I want to buy it because it makes my life better. That's, that's crucial. And, that, and that's something that has been missing for a very long time in the crypto space. It's a very interesting shift, like you mentioned, not from the how can I spend this, but how can I incentivize other people to give me and for me to grow my, my stash Yes. Very, very big shift. Yes. Anyway, I think maybe that's a really good uh, time for us to kind of wrap that up here. We'll be going on just on an hour here. How can people find out more about you, what you do, where can they follow you? Let us know. So I'm everywhere. My name is Kurt Wookert Jr. Uh, I'm Kurt Wookert Jr. That's K-U-R-T-W-U-C-K-E-R-T-J-R. Literally everywhere. So that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Friend request me, follow me, whatever. Ask me questions. I answer all my DMs um, as long as they're not spam. But um, <laughs> but yeah, no, interact with me. I, I love to talk. I love to teach. I'm happy to hop on other people's podcasts. You can find my business stuff at CryptoTradersPro.com uh, where we host uh, you know Bitcoin Bootcamp. We have a training program. We teach technical analysis for trading. A um, bunch of other stuff there. But yeah, CryptoTradersPro.com. Or on social media, you can find me at Kurt Wookert JR, and um, I'd be happy to be your friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us here on DigiBiden Friends. I've I've learned a lot as well. It's really appreciate your insights, especially around big blocks, around validation, and around scaling. And you have so much like a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for taking the time to teach us. For sure. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, yeah, we'll no. be in touch. Talk to you in the next. Thanks time. for having me on. Take care. Thanks then.